One of my friends listened to my homily last week, and he messaged me and said, Stop using a homily voice, you tool. (laughs) We're close. (laughs) And he's got a point, because when I write everything down, I tend to lecture. So today, as opposed to my 14-page homily last weekend, this is it. (laughs) So we're going to see how this goes. Do me a favor, all of you, please raise one of your hands. As you don't have to do it super high, just, you know, like, keep it raised. If you are under the age of 20, put your hand down. 30, put your hand down. 40. 50. 60. Oh, yeah, you didn't know this is public confession time. (laughs) 70. You're like 12. Put your hand down, okay? Put put it down. Now, what are we at, 70? Okay, if you're under 80, put your hand down. So we've got a few people. All right, so the majority of the hands stayed up for a majority of the... You can put your hands down. The, The majority of the hands stayed up for a majority of the time, did they not? So the homily today is hopefully more oriented towards those people who had their hand elevated in the air, more so than, say, my last week's homily, which was on weed and the morality of Catholic smoking weed. You can listen to it online if you care. But today, I want to focus on the last line of the gospel. It says, The twelve drove out many demons and anointed them with oil, and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So, everything we do in the Catholic Church is scriptural. Like, we don't just make stuff up because we think it's cool. We do it because it has a scriptural and traditional basis. So, therefore, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the letter of James, not John, all talk about healing through the anointing by the priests with oil. So this is, I mean, if you get the right book for the anointing of the sick, the thing I bring into every hospital room and hospice case, it says, the opening prayer says, are there, uh, it says in the letter of James, are there sick among you? Let them send for the priests of the church and the priests will pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of the sick person's I'm sorry, the prayer of the priests will save the sick persons. Okay, so we have this scriptural basis of healing through anointing with oil by the priests. So this is where we get our theology and our practice of the anointing of the sick. We also see in this, uh, this gospel reading kind of the functions of a priest given by what the Lord tells the twelve to do, who were his first priests. First, the priest should rely on the Lord and the gospel and not worry about money, riches, or power. Now, if you read the gospel today and then you read the, uh, the corollary uh, account in Matthew or Mark, whatever we read today, you do the other guy with an M, um, they differ. They are in conflict. They are not the same. Jesus tells them in one of the Gospels not to take anything, not to wear sandals, not a walking stick, not a second tunic, not anything. But today he says, you can have sandals, but don't bring a second coat. So what are we to understand about the nature of Scripture in that it conflicts itself? Does this mean that it is not infallible? Does it mean that it's not the inspired word of the Lord? Does it mean that those Gospels were written 
years apart by two different guys who may have remembered dif things differently or were trying to speak to different audiences and therefore highlighted different things. Now, the, the biblical commentaries are full of reasons why they differ. So to go into it would be a whole different homily. But it doesn't make the scriptures any less inspired by the Holy Spirit that there are disputes among them. You and your family members, in remembering last Christmas, are going to say different things happened. You and your family members talking about last week are going to say different things happened. It doesn't mean that any account is any less real or truthful. It's just how you remembered it. Now, you want to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1, the story of creation, differs. In Genesis chapter 1, man is the first thing created, or uh, the last thing created. In Genesis chapter 2, he's the first thing created. What was the Lord doing? Well, first of all, no one was there. We don't know. But anyway, just because the scriptures conflict with each other doesn't mean that they are erroneous, wrong, not inspired, not given by the Lord. Okay, that was function number one of the priest. Number two, he should exercise and cast out demons. So the priest does this in two ways. First, through the formal exorcism rite, which we don't really talk about anymore, but is still a real thing. Every diocese is supposed to have an exorcist on staff probably hidden because we don't want crazy people contacting him all the time but there is someone assigned to handle the case of exorcisms now in order to have a formal exorcism case one must first go through a battery of psychological tests because often schizophrenia looks a lot like possession or other mental illnesses so it's not just that you think you're possessed and you go see the exorcist and he goes be healed so there's a formal process but it does still happen and there are many different levels, there are three levels of exorcism. I'm sorry, three levels of possession. The, the first is just um, simple obsession. And then I think it's, no, it's aversion to holy objects. Then it's obsession. Then it's like full-blown exorcism. Uh, so you can read all about that. There's a, a priest named Father Gabriel Amaroth who literally wrote the book on exorcism, was the world's foremost exorcist until he died a couple years ago wonderful. And you know what he says about exorcism? It's not scary. Weird things happen, sure, but the power of Christ is way better, way more powerful than anything a demon can do. The second way that the priest does exorcisms is through confession. This is the most regular and powerful form of exorcism that can happen because you are breaking the bonds of sin and returning to the Lord for his mercy. This is available to every Catholic from every priest. You don't have to be special. To get this. This, is, this happens every time you go to confession. The third uh, function of the priest that we hear about in the gospel is that they should anoint with oil and cure the sick. Now, let's just be real clear about the anointing of the sick. It goes by many names. You were probably taught a different name for it, depending on how old you are. Um, it's gone by extreme unction, viaticum, last rites, anointing of the sick, the sacraments of healing, all of it means the same thing. A lot of times I'll go into a hospital room and I'm like, hi, you know, I'm Father Dan. Someone called me and said that you'd like to be anointed. And the person, I don't want the last rites. That means I'm dying. Sure, why not? How about I just give you the anointing of the sick? And they're like, oh yeah, that sounds much better. <laughs> it's the same thing. Now, historically, it was held for those people who were dying. It would be the very last sacrament you would get. Viaticum, Latin translation, means food for the journey, which you would get confession, anointing of the sick, and Holy Eucharist for the very last time, and you would be sent on your way into the afterlife. But 
That doesn't mean that you only receive, or you have to only receive the anointing of the sick one time. Especially with our understanding of the anointing of the sick now, it is a sacrament of healing, both in body and spirit. That's why the letter of James says, so then call the priests, let them pray over the sick persons, they will anoint them with oil and they will be healed. You may not receive a physical healing, but the healing is spiritual. The healing is the same thing that happens when you go to confession. So the anointing of the sick, which we're just going to call all of them the anointing of the sick from now on for, for clarity, the anointing of the sick takes away all of your sins as if you had made the best confession of your life. So if someone is conscious, they may confess or they may just receive the anointing. It's up to them. If someone is unconscious, but you know that they would desire the anointing of the sick, they are called by the hospice chaplain, the nurse, the family member, the anybody. We had someone who was a neighbor call for their neighbor a couple weeks ago. It was beautiful. Then we anoint them whether they're conscious or not, and it has the same effect. It heals the soul. And we pray also for a healing of the body. And this is why we say that you should get the anointing of the sick if ever you have a situation that brings you closer to death than normal. What does that mean? Are you going to have surgery? Are you going to deliver a baby? Are you going to do anything that literally carries with it the possibility that you could die? Um, we, we want to anoint you before you go do that so that we set you up for the best possible scenario just in case the worst possible scenario happens. I have a very good friend of mine whose name is Paul and I met Paul through the youth group at Church of the Ascension in Virginia Beach when I was 14 years old, so 20 some years ago. Paul's father had just died when I met him. Paul's father, I think, was in his 50s. He went in for a simple knee reconstruction surgery, and he died from complications from anesthesia. Paul's father, Jim, should not have died from that surgery. He was a young-ish, healthy man, and yet he died. And this is why we want to anoint you before you go into surgery, regardless of your age, regardless of your health. We want to prepare. It's like holy life insurance. You do it, but you hope you don't need it. <laughs> so the anointing of the sick takes away the sins that you may have committed, and it brings you back into right relations with the Lord. Now, if someone is close to death, and like actually close to death, not just like, oh, I stubbed my toe. If they're actually close to death, and the priest comes, and if it's me, I will do this every time. If it's someone else, you may request this. For the, the Holy Father has given every priest the ability to do this. There's something called the apostolic pardon, which um, I have it. It's just on a little card. It's an insert that I keep in my book for the anointing of the sick. And the apostolic pardon is like a holy reset button. It returns your soul to the state that it was in at the moment of baptism. So what it does is the anointing of the sick takes away your sins. But, because of those sins, you still might have to spend time in purgatory, depending on your own uh, predicament. The apostolic pardon gets rid of any temporal punishment associated with your soul. So, therefore, all of your sins and the time spent in purgatory that you may have had to spend there is taken away. It's the same thing that happens on Divine Mercy Sunday when you do the Divine Mercy Promises. It's the same thing that happens when you are baptized. Um, and, and it's the same thing that happens at the apostolic pardon when it is given in conjunction with um, the anointing of the sick for a dying person. Now, the beauty of the apostolic pardon is that, yes, it should be imparted by a priest. But if there is literally no priest around, 
You can Google it and say it for the person when they are dying. Okay? Again, it should be done by a priest. You should call for the priest. We have an emergency phone. I literally just gave it to Father Tony this morning. It's small. It's a flip phone. People look at me weird when I pull it out. But you can get us, one of us, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We will come anoint whoever is dying. But if for whatever reason you're out in the middle of nowhere and someone's dying and you know they would want this prayer said, then you as a layperson actually can say it too. Just Google it. The beautiful thing about the anointing of the sick and the beautiful thing about the church actually in general is that death trumps everything. So it doesn't matter if you've lived your life in one way for 95 years and then on your deathbed decide, mm, I was baptized Catholic, you know what, I'd like to be right with the church again. You are able to be reconciled with the church. It doesn't matter if you've lived in contradiction to the church. If in your last moments you want to receive the church's mercy and be reconciled with the church, that is given to you. Death trumps everything. Irregular marriages, um, excommunications, anything that you could do to yourself to be in an opposition stance to the church, death trumps it all. So if you are dying and you call for the priest, he will give you confession or anointing and you're good to go. Now that's the end of the homily, part one. Homily part two. We hear in the, uh, the first reading today uh, about uh, the prophet who name I forget right now, so we're going to look at it. What is it? Amos? Yeah. Dresser of sycamores. This is like a great conversation that you walk into the middle of awkwardly when you go to your friend's house and he's arguing with his parents. Because the priest is actually yelling at him and telling him to get out of Israel because he's prophesying against the priest and his people. Sorry, the king and his people. Uh, the priest Amos is saying, you all are going to die. Like, you're not living in accordance with the Lord. You stink. And so the, the uh, uh, Amaziah or whatever his name is, he is telling him to get out. And Amos turns to him, he's like, fine, I didn't even want to be here anyway. I was doing my thing with sycamores. The Lord made me do this. Like, I am not a prophet. But he's obedient. And he does leave. Okay? So I want to just speak for a minute about obedience because it's an interesting thing. We have a bunch of priests, and a bunch was like a handful. We have a, a handful of priests here in the media recently who are quote-unquote in opposition to their bishops, and they are, are in opposition because they are too traditional. That's what these priests are hanging their hats on. So we have Father Mark White of our own diocese. We have Father James Altman of La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin, or wherever up north. We have Father Kevin Parker of Indiana. All of these priests have put themselves in some way, in different circumstances, in opposition to their bishop. That's a very interesting thing because they claim to be very traditional, yet by not being obedient to their bishop, they lack all tradition. Padre Pio was sanctioned by his bishop, or by his superior, and when they thought Padre Pio was getting a little too popular, they said, you are banned from public ministry, you are relegated to, I think, a hospital where you can just sit and pray and do your monk thing. And Padre Pio's response was obedience. He said, sure. And for a couple of years, he was silent. He could not meet with people. He could not hear public confessions. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't say public mass. And he was silent. And then a couple of years later, he was vindicated. And he was allowed to return back to public ministry because of his obedience. So these priests, who are all over the Catholic right-wing media right now, are claiming that they are traditional in being persecuted 
But again, when they aren't listening to their bishop, when they aren't living out their vow of obedience that they claim that every priest makes to his bishop that is ordaining him and all of his successors, they stop being traditional and they start being schismatic. So I hope that they return back and that they are able to uh, be reconciled with not only the church, but their bishops. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there because there's a lot of confusion about that these days. So call for the priests when you know someone who is sick or dying. Come get the anointing of the sick when you might be going in for surgery or having a child or etc. Anything that brings you in close proximity to possible death. And whatever happens in life, always trust on the mercy of the Lord and come back to him through the sacrament of confession.